here's Jesus' prayer. This is John 17. Look at verse 20. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, Jesus praying to his Father the night before he died, but for those, verse 20, also who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe. Notice our unity is evangelistic. That the world may believe that thou didst send me. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, 23, thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity. That's our subject today, unity. That the world may know. Notice a second time. That the world may know. I take it the unbelieving world. That they may know that thou didst send me and didst love them even as thou didst love me. Earlier in John, as you turn back to 1 Corinthians, Jesus said that men, women would know that we are his disciples by our love one for another. Our unity does have an impact in the world. It strikes me that Jesus says that his church should in this respect reflect his nature. Think about it. He said that we would be one as he and the Father are one. So we think of the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he prayed that our oneness would be akin to that, would be similar to that, so that the world would see the nature of God reflected in the church. And of course, ours is a reflected light. We're not the light but we reflect the light of God. Nowhere else in the world will you see a mix of people like us with all these different football jerseys on this morning. Teams that don't like each other, but somehow we still manage to love each other. It only can be the work of the Spirit. <laughs> anyway, that's kind of a silly example, but you know what I'm talking about. Jesus is our peace. He is our shalom. The word peace in Hebrew is shalom. And it's a word in the Hebrew picture language that actually is defined this way by Dr. Seekins. Shalom means to destroy the authority that establishes chaos and to deal with root issues. Shalom is a very Jewish expression for being well in your whole person, for being well with God and with others. It's about being well with God and the community of family and saints that are around you. It's shalom. It's this idea of peace. One commentary I read this week says, The undergirding human longing is for unity, not disunity. Harmony, not chaos. Integration and not disintegration. The desire to be a unified, shalomic community of people who sacrificially love one another. But in reality, this is not the normative structure of communities. Throughout the Old Testament prophets, they dreamed about the glorious day. They called it the golden age, when all things that are corrupt and broken down will, would be rebuilt, where the wolf and the lamb would lie down together, when there would be peace in all my holy mountain, when they would learn war no more, when they would beat their swords into plowshares, this is what the Bible anticipates in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ when the Prince of Peace is reigning from Jerusalem, reigning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That day is coming, praise the Lord. 
It's going to be realized at some point. We have the down payment of it now. We have Jesus Christ living in us right now. But one day we will realize this golden age. But right now we find ourselves in the church. And the church can be a messy place, no doubt. Because we say that the church is a hospital for sinners and not a museum for saints. Right? We welcome each one of us in with all of our hang-ups and all of our struggles and all of our imperfections and idiosyncrasies and everything else we could name. And we're, we're commanded to love each other. As he loved us, so we should love one another. If that was your target for the rest of your days, you would have a great target to aim for. In fact, you would be doing what Jesus commanded we do to love each other as he loved us. You see, 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful. He's faithful to love. He's faithful to finish what he started in us despite our weaknesses and shortcomings through whom you, church, were called, 1 Corinthians 1.9, into fellowship. See the word fellowship? That's the word koinonia. It's spelled K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A, koinonia. You may have heard that before. The koinonia we enjoy is with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, but it's also with one another. God is faithful, but we know people are another story. As one person put it, to live above with saints we love will certainly be glory. To live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> and all God's people said, yeah, <laughs> I think so. What is koinonia? Koinonia speaks of partnership, participation. It speaks of community and communion. It speaks of close association and intimacy. It speaks of a tight-knit community bound together in truth and love. We have unity around the truth of Jesus. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. You guys look up at this verse right here. That verse is three verses before what I just read to you in Jesus's prayer. We don't have unity around nothing. We have unity around the person of Christ and the truth of Christ. We have a world today that wants unity, but not around the essential uh, doctrines of Christianity. Our unity is around who Christ is and who he claimed to be. We are to be a tight-knit group, but whenever you're in a tight-knit situation, there's always the possibility that things can unravel. Sometimes you take a long car ride with your family. You're, you're finally going to get to that vacation that you've been longing for for years, and you all get in the car, and you imagine singing camp songs the whole time as you travel with the kids smiling in the back seat. Isn't this great? Sing another one, Daddy. And then reality sets in. They're choking each other in the back seat. You prayed for unity. You brought these children into the world. You can also take them out of the world. <laughs> and Paul writes back to the Corinthian church after his introduction about the faithfulness of God. And as I mentioned, the, the letter is largely corrective. And he says the following. This is verse 10. Now, the Greek word is day. It's the idea of now or but. It's a contrast with the preceding. So they are very far from the fellowship mentioned in verse 9. In fact, they have division. Now I exhort you, I appeal to you, NIV, I plead with you, New King James, verse 10. Brethren, 
I appeal, I appeal to you, brothers, the ESV. By the way, the, the term brothers or brethren used 39 times in 1 Corinthians. Second place, Romans and 1 Thessalonians used 19 times. So this is the most times that Paul appeals to a familial term. You are brethren, you are brothers. I appeal to you. The idea of appeal is I beg you, I beseech you. It's a pastoral appeal, brethren. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one to whom you were called into fellowship, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, here's his pleading, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now comes the appeal from the Apostle Paul. Put yourself in his sandals. He spent a year and a half. He, was, he planted the church in Corinth. He poured into these people. And then he gets a report that they're all divided. That they have all these little camps within the Corinthian congregation surrounded around or centered in different teachers that they like the best. And the church, instead of being one, instead of being in true koinonia, was divided. And Paul appeals to them. He says, this isn't just about getting along. This just isn't about a social club. This is about a group of people purchased by the blood of the Lamb, led by the Good Shepherd. We should know better. Our unity is evangelistic. And I'm sure that many of you have not thought about unity that way. But when people walk into a church and they see you guys loving each other, it's a sign. It's an it's a invitation into a love and a peace that most in our world do not know. They don't know an unconditional love. They don't know a supernatural peace. They know a pseudo-peace, a false peace that's conditional, that's based upon circumstances. Jesus says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give it to you? His peace is unique because it is supernatural. And so Paul pleads with them. He pleads with them to be one. If you've ever been a person who's watched a family or a church argue and then begin to disintegrate, you know the feelings that Paul has, especially if you have some stock in it, especially if you have a relationship with these people and you watch it and you go, oh my goodness, this is so sad. Sometimes it's over, you know, money that's been left by someone who passed on and so forth. And you watch division happen. The word division translates a Greek word called schismata. It's S-C-H-I-S-M-A-T-A, schismata. In the physical sense, the word schismata means to tear or rip. It means to separate. Uh, It's uh, to split or gap. It's a schism. That's the idea of the word. It means to rend a garment. And you can hear Paul's pastoral heart saying, please stop tearing each other apart. Stop. Please stop tearing each other apart. Your disunity needs to be mended because you are tearing each other apart. People in churches are literally ripped apart by divisions that many times are driven by a few people who demand their way, and if it doesn't happen, whether intentionally or unintentionally, they become the source of tearing apart the very fiber of a church. Eventually, the church becomes frayed, to use our language of mending, and must be mended back together. Listen to Ray Steadman, who's now with the Lord. 
Over the years, I've been called to help settle disputes at a number of different churches. I've seen one common denominator in every case. People on both sides of the dispute spoke of the church they attended as my church. They didn't merely mean the church I go to. They meant the church belongs to me. Every church dispute you encounter, people who feel a sense of proprietorship toward the church, a sense that they have the right to call the shots. These people forget who truly owns the church, and they forget who paid for the church in blood, close quote. You see, when we get weird about these things, when we think that we own it, and so our way or the highway, it, it can become very divisive. In fact, Paul says, warn a divisive, factious person a couple of times and then have nothing to do with them because this is one of the things that can really hurt a church. Look at verse 10. He implores them that there be no schismata among them, but that you be made complete. See the word complete there? That's katartizo in the Greek. It's a word used that when Jesus came up to call James and John, they were mending their nets. To be made complete is to be mended back together again. In the ancient medical world, it was used for the resetting of a bone. If you broke a bone and it needed to be reset by a medical doctor, that's the word katartizo. It's the idea of mending, mending and even equipping. And when a bone is reset, it can become stronger once it's reset and heals. And there's hope for all of us. If we've been in a situation where something's been ripped apart, it could be a marriage, it could be a close relationship, it may be you this morning, you've walked into this place and there's something that's literally been torn from you or you're torn apart. The good news is that God can heal. He can bring you back together again. He can mend the wound. He can sew things back together. Colossians 2.2 says that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love. That's the key. And attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. And so we are to be sowing seeds of love. If we can use the mending analogy, we're to sow things that mend people back together because this is a hard world to live in. It can be very difficult. You, you get hired at a company and it can be literally a dog-eat-dog -dog world. We all know how it can be. So we want to come into a place like the church that is safe and healing. Paul is not calling upon all Christians to be cookie-cutter Christians, by the way. He's not saying that you should all dress alike, think alike in every category of your life. Please, that would be frightening. <laughs> if we all walked in with the same clothing on, uniforms or something like that, good morning, good morning, People would think something weird is going on. Later, Paul will talk about the beauty of our unity within our diversity. This is the beauty of the body of Christ. Every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, people from all around the globe, one day will be before the throne and before the Lamb, celebrating, honoring the one who paid for us all. What are the steps to mending disunity. Let me give you a few. First, uh, the one I just mentioned is agreement about the main things or the main focus. Agreement about the main things or the main focus. Speak the same was a term used to describe political parties that were free from factions. 
How many of you watch a little bit of political theater these days? Uh, it's, hard. it's hard not to watch it, right? And you watch people debate back and forth, up and down. In the first five minutes of most of the programs, you'll get all the stories of the day. But they have to be looked at from every angle. And people are heated and they talk over each other. And that's a loose interpretation of how they sound. <laughs> and then there's a person in the middle. Calm down. Let this person finish. Calm down. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and people, oh, they almost look like they're going to combust on the air. John MacArthur comments, a few things are more devastating to, to a church than everyone having his own ideas and interpretations about the faith or of the congregation being divided into various factions, each with its own views. This could also apply to biblical ethics. I mean, if you went to multiple Bible studies in a church and someone was teaching something different about the gospel or the Trinity or how you get saved, would you be a little confused? Some new Christians who turn on so-called Christian television can get confused. Why? Because they often hear someone with sound theology preaching sound doctrine, and then the next person in the next half hour is out to lunch. And people get confused. This is not what should go on in the Christian church. The local church, if it's going to be spiritually healthy, harmonious, and effective, must above all, please hear what I'm about to say, must above all have doctrinal unity. If we don't have unity around the truth, we have nothing. All we are then is a social club who's found some common things that bring us together on a Sunday morning like this. To me, that's useless. I'll go to the beach instead, thank you. I don't need a social club. I want to know the one who bought me, the one who saved me, and the one who called a community to himself. Amen? And I think that's what the world needs as well. And so we need doctrinal unity. Maybe a good place to start when a church is in trouble or a marriage is in trouble is this. Can we just agree on this? Can we just agree on this? Maybe if your marriage is in trouble, could you say, can we just agree on the fact that we made a covenant to love one another? We made vows to one another. Can we agree on that? Can we start there? Can we as the church agree and I'm speaking to the church worldwide now, can we as the church agree that our main focus is Jesus and the gospel, the word of God, the God of the Bible? Can we agree on that? Because then we can talk about non-essential issues and we can then decide where those land, right? We can talk about modes of baptism, what you believe about the rapture, you know, people have argued over the years about infant baptism or believer's baptism. Some say you should sprinkle when you baptize. Some say you should dunk. Some say you should dry clean people. I mean, there's... <laughs> that last one's a little loose again. Anyway. See, we do need unity around the truth. And Paul says in Romans 16, 17, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, listen to this, contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. Later, Paul will say there are debatable matters. There are issues of what you eat and drink and days of worship that we can debate and talk about that are, that are ultimately not essential issues. But there is something essential, and if we don't have that down, we have nothing. 
There are those in our world that are touting spirituality. You can be spiritual, but it doesn't matter what you believe about the Bible or Jesus. That's a lie. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And what? No one's coming to the Father except through me. By the way, when I say that to somebody, I say, that's not what I said. That's what Jesus said. So if you have an argument, sir or ma'am, it's with him. Number two, ways to mend unity or division in the church is to be perfectly united, NIV, in mind and thought. We're still dealing with verse 10. Sometimes we simply have to change our frame of mind about how we think about things. Let me say that one more time. Sometimes we just have to change our mind about how we think about things. And what we really need is mind transformation. We need the Word of God to really inform our thinking about the church, about the gospel. The Word of God must inform our thinking because if it doesn't, all it is is a matter of opinion. And your opinion is no better than mine and mine no better than yours, right? But if the Word of God informs my conscience in biblical ethics, if it informs the church in terms of what it does and how it practices what it does, then we have something that's authoritative. Let us therefore, says Paul, as many as are perfect have this attitude. And if anything, in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. That's Philippians 3, 15 and 16. Sometimes we just need to have our thinking changed. Do you know what the church is about? Do you know what brings us together on a Sunday morning? We need to know that. And over the years, there's been many times when I've been listening to sermons and a pastor's going through the Word of God and it hit me and it was like, ooh, ouch. But then it comes down to who's going to define the church, me or the Lord? I think the Lord is going to define His church. A few years ago, I heard a story of two ministers that got into a fight about what they considered to be an important doctrinal matter. They settled the fight when the first minister told the second, look, What are we fighting over? We're both striving to do the Lord's work. You do it your way. I'll do it his way. (laughs) Verse 11. For I have been informed concerning you, Paul says to the Corinthian church, my brethren, by Chloe's people. Now, I think you all knew that at some point Chloe would show up in the Bible. Don't you guys? Now, Chloe is our children's ministry director. She's right here. She's on the third row. She's our kids director. And she's in the video. She's the star of the video every week because, you know, you know, she's just cool, man. She can, hey, hey, living truth, what's up? She's shooting squirt guns. She's got goggles on. She's just, she shows up in her pajamas sometimes. It's just amazing. Not only is Chloe in the Bible, but she has people. Would you notice? I've been informed by Chloe's people. Now, I'm not surprised at all that Chloe has people. She has a whole network. It runs from the Inland Empire all the way down to the beach. Chloe, huh? She's right here, so I can talk about her, I think. Anyway. So Chloe, not our Chloe, (laughs) to be accurate. Chloe informed Paul about what was going on in the church. And there's some debate among scholars. We don't know for sure whether or not Chloe was actually a Christian. 
Some people believe that she was a businesswoman. We're not talking about our Chloe. Who had business between, she was probably from Ephesus because Paul wrote 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. And she did business between Ephesus and Corinth. So apparently here's what happened, and most believe that she was a Christian, is that she went and visited the Corinthian congregation, came back into Ephesus where Paul was and said, Paul, i got to tell you something. What, what, what is it? The church you planted in Corinth, I mean Corinth, is a disaster. What? They've written me a couple letters. They never brought this up once. They just said they had questions about marriage and divorce and a couple of other things. They never told me that they were schismata, that they were a mess, that they were torn apart. What's going on? Oh, you won't believe what's going on. The church in Corinth is a disaster. Here's what Chloe's household shared, that there are quarrels among you, or if Chloe would say it to Paul, they do nothing but quarrel. They fight and bicker about who thinks who is the greatest teacher in that church. And Chloe told on them, and they needed to be told on. Oh, Paul, I went to your church, and this is what I experienced. Sometimes it's good to, you bring a friend to church and you ask them their opinion. <laughs> hey, what did you think of the service? And sometimes you just see your friend's eyes are really big, like, I don't know what to think of those people. Let's just start with the music. What in the world's going on? I don't gather with my friends on a Friday night and say, hey, let's sing a song. What do you think? That's weird. And then some guy comes out for 45, I mean, <laughs> 55 minutes. I preach this from that Bible. What in the world's going on around there? I wanted to exit, but you guys have long pews. It's difficult to get out. <laughs> I say all of this because I was that person some years ago. I thought everybody in the church was bananas. I thought you people had lost your collective minds. And now, <laughs> I'm one of you. <laughs> Not only that, I'm a big part of the banana split. <laughs> anyway. We'll see in a moment that their quarrels were not about the gospel or the truth of God's word, but about a teacher they associated themselves with. It was about style, looks, eloquence, oratory. Who has the most pizzazz? The Greeks put a high emphasis on rhetoric and philosophical skills. Today, our world is enamored with associations to schools, jobs, individuals. Somehow, we feel if we can be associated with them, we can get some self-validation. Listen to, this is a commentary uh, by somebody named Um, last name U-M. In the world of educational credentials, there's always a desire to inform people in an organic way about our association with the selective institutions and reputable scholars. Oftentimes people may hear, I graduated from this institution, I studied with this individual, and if anyone knows anything in this field, they'll know that he or she is in the top five of their particular field. This happens everywhere, says this writer. Why? It sounds as though we are praising the institution, but in essence, we are praising ourselves. The institution is our patron. This was the issue of horizontal factionalism, 
or patronage, says this writer, for self-validation. In many ways, people and causes become our surrogate saviors, close quote. Hey, I went here. Hey, I go to church over there. Hey, my football team is, oh, sorry, well, let's not go there. That's too personal for me. I have close associations with my sports teams. Strike that from the record. That doesn't apply. Anyway. <laughs> and so they were quarreling about it. And it was big in Corinth to know where your associations lied. So you could say, oh, well, I grew up with, with this education, or I listened to this philosophical teacher, or this or that. And everything about you was about your associations with others. I go to these parties. I, I hang with these particular individuals. And they were quarreling, and they were fighting, and it was ugly. Now Paul says, this is what I mean, verse 12. I mean this, that each of you is saying, it seems like it was church-wide to every person, each of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I of Apollos, I of Cephas, which is Peter's Aramaic name, and I of Christ. There were four factions in the Corinthian church. And since this was a big city, it may be that there were four different meeting places. Remember, there's no church buildings in the first century. So the church would have met in houses or in the open air. So it's possible that each of these meetings had a particular emphasis. And one group said, I'm of Paul. It'd be something like this. You know, uh, I was around since this whole thing began, just so you're informed. Uh, when Paul planted the church, I was part of the first committee. I was there. I, I know the founder of the church. His name is Paul. He's a short guy. You know, hair's kind of going away. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's who I am. I, I've been around here for a long time. I, I know what's going on. And there were tribes in the church. The Paul party would likely consist of those who were the first fruits of the apostles' labors in Corinth. I was here when they started the whole thing. The Apollos party, verse 12, named after Apollos, who came to Corinth shortly after Paul's departure. He was an eloquent man, born in Alexandria, mighty in the scriptures, probably polished in Greek rhetoric and philosophy, more impressive than Paul. And so the, the Greeks could really relate to this guy. They would say, he's an impressive speaker. He's taller than Paul. He's handsome. You know, I like how he rolls his R's when he says a word. He can do that. It's just terribly impressive. You know, I like the way he dresses be that kind of thing. The Cephas party was probably composed of Jewish converts. Since Peter was a Christian longer than Paul, he was the leader of the twelve, and he seemed to be more uh, in the direction of Jewish law in terms of his, maybe his emphasis. Maybe those who were Jewish in the Corinthian church liked to associate more with Peter. Maybe they felt that Paul was a little bit liberal on some things that they thought important. Now Paul, please note, does not attack any of these men for their teaching. They all teach the same gospel. They all teach the word of God. The issue is not their teaching. The issue is how people see them, and I'm sure each of them would be greatly uh, discouraged and disheartened by emphasis being placed on them. They would not want that. Peter would not want that. Paul would not want that. Apollos would not want that. 
And lastly, they had a Christ party. It's more difficult to determine who these people were, but one writer says the most likely view is that they rejected all human authority, refusing to acknowledge Paul or Apollos or Cephas or any other eminent teacher. Maybe they were tired of all these human teachers. Some today in the professing church simply will not be part of a traditional church. They folded up the tent. They don't believe that there can be a head pastor somewhere or a main teaching pastor. They they believe that's not right and that's not the way God would have it. Heard a story of a freelance missionary visited a pastor friend of Warren Wearsby asking for financial support. What group are you associated with, the pastor asked. The man replied, oh, we, I belong to the invisible church. The pastor then asked, well, what church are you a member of? Again, he got the answer, I belong to the invisible church. Getting a bit suspicious, my friend, the pastor, asked, well, when does the invisible church meet? Who pastors it? The missionary then became incensed and said, well, your church here isn't the true church. I belong to the invisible church. The pastor replied, well, then here's some invisible money for your invisible church. (laughs) Don't you think that's funny? You guys should have laughed more at that. That's, That's funny. A worse option is that they turn Jesus into just another teacher, the Jesus party. Oh, we like Paul, we like Peter, we like Apollos, we like Jesus, just another teacher, another patron. No, 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 no. Jesus is Lord of the church, nothing less. And so Paul explodes in some indignation with three questions in verse 13. Take a look. He says in what I imagine great Jewish style. Oy vey. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Oy. Really? Is Christ or has Christ been divided? No. It's one church under the head of the church, Christ. Every church that's legitimate is his church. The whole church is his church. Leaders will come and go. Men and women who rise to take different ministry positions. Pastors who rise. Men who go into the pulpit live and die. I live in a world of books. I am amazed. I read a commentary and I look at dates and this commentator was born in 1940-something and died in 1990-something. And I'm like, most people who I read today are dead. Say, Pastor Mike, that sounds like a personal problem. (laughs) Hold on a minute. Here's what I'm saying. Each of us have a season, a short window, but the Lord of the church lives and reigns for how long? Forever. Has Christ been divided? I wasn't crucified for you, says Paul. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I sure hope not, because that would be a waste. The strength of our fellowship is our relationship with Christ. The strength of your relationships around you will be determined by your vertical relationship with Christ. The strength of our fellowship as a body is directly linked to our maturity in our walk with Christ. Do you agree? Your marriage 
And the strength of it is directly linked to your vertical relationship with the Lord because you will love your spouse better, you will love them well, you will love others well when the power of God is unleashed in your life. Has Christ been divided? Some scholars see an image that is graphic and grotesque as though Christ could be parceled out in the cliques of the Corinthian church. Paul says, what are you trying to do? The Christian church that is divided is a contradiction. We are to be one. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One church. We are one. Yes, we meet in many different places, even in this city. I heard recently that there's something like 65 churches in Corona. Can you believe that? 65 churches. And so there are many of your brothers and sisters meeting in other places this morning. And we are one with them because we have the common bond of the same Lord. One faith, one Lord, one baptism. Look at verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. We could translate this this way. I thank God I didn't baptize but a few of you that are in Corinth. (laughs) I mean, ouch, Paul. Come on, man. I'm so glad I only baptized a few of you in Corona. (laughs) Why would Paul say such a thing? Isn't baptism important? Notice that no man should say you were baptized in my name. Can you imagine? They were already fighting. They were already factioning with parties. Can you imagine them carrying around their baptism certificates? Who baptized you? (laughs) The founder of the church baptized me. Paul, the apostle. Can you imagine that? They'd have the certificate. They'd have bumper stickers that would read, I was baptized by the Apostle Paul. Honk twice if you were as well. (laughs) We're so into this kind of stuff. But it loses the appeal quickly because Jesus is the center of the church. Do you know John 4.2 says that Jesus didn't baptize anybody personally. John 4, 2, Jesus didn't baptize anybody personally. John the Baptist baptized Jesus, but Jesus didn't baptize anybody personally. Why do you think that is? Probably because Jesus knows what people are like. Can you imagine? You're at a party. I'm baptized by Apollo. Baptized me. Oh, hold on. You got to say it right at the end. I was baptized by Jesus. (laughs) Party's over, huh? That's it. Nobody can say anything else now. Yep. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Now, some of you need to mark verse 15. This is glorious. This tells you that forgetting certain things in the past is biblical. Some of you struggle with memory, right? People ask you about, you know, do you remember when we were over here and we did this and did that? And you're like, no. Who are you? Anyway, I don't even know who you are. <laughs> and we, we talk it up, man, my memory's going, this and that. Hey, Paul's a writer of Scripture, but he was not God. He was not omniscient. And so he could get revelation from God and perfectly write it in Scripture with it being inerrant. And yet at the same time, we see his humanity. He says, I remember baptizing a few people in that city, but I I don't know. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's Paul. If you had pancakes with Paul, he might say that. I baptized a few people in Corona. I don't even know. If they can produce the certificate, maybe. You know. For Christ, final verse, did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. Paul is not saying that baptism is not important. But he is saying that baptism is not the gospel. Some of you have run into these people at the mall. They have little business cards. Here's what they say. I'm from this church. Uh, have you been baptized? Oh, yeah, I was baptized at Living Truth in 2016. They dunked me right in this little thing here. Oh, 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 friend. Well, what? Friend, that's not a legitimate baptism. Well, what is, sir? Oh, you must be baptized in the name of Jesus in our church building in our baptismal. Oh, you're not saved. What? Look, baptism is the first act of obedience. Yes, the book of Acts has people getting saved and getting baptized rather quickly. But baptism is a picture of the gospel. It is not the gospel. Jesus Christ saves, not water. The Holy Spirit regenerating you on the inside is what brings salvation. Being brought from darkness to light, the power of Satan to God, being born again of the Holy Spirit is what saves you. Baptism is a beautiful emblem of salvation. It's something you should do. If you have not been baptized, you should be baptized. You might say, why? You just said that it's not necessary for salvation. Here's what I am saying. I'm saying Jesus said, get baptized, so you better do it. Or you're going to answer to him one day. Well, I didn't really feel like it. The word of God says, baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That's why we baptize. Jesus told us to. And it's a beautiful picture. It's a time in the early church uh, people who came to Christ would give their testimony. It was probably the early altar call. It's when somebody stood up and said, I believe in Christ and I am part of you. And then they were baptized in water. Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the good news, not in cleverness of speech, as many of you Corinthians seem to care most about, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. What will heal factionalism in the church? Simply put, the gospel. When a church loses its focus on Christ and the gospel, it has lost its way. When a church is more into slick marketing approaches and fanciful whatever to try to replace or substitute or even somehow supplement the power of the gospel and the power of the word, that church is heading down a slippery slope. And I'll tell you, folks, it is everywhere. It's everywhere. Apparently, we have lost confidence in the power of the book. And that should not be. Paul says, look, 
Christ sent me to preach the good news because the gospel is the power, the dunamis of God for salvation to everyone who believes, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, whether you're Jew or a Gentile. Stedman comments, No human being would have ever planned the cross. If it were left up to us to plan a program of salvation, we would have never included the cross. The cross of Christ is shocking. It shatters our egos. The cross leaves no room for divisions and factions because the cross leaves no room for pride. If you can look at the cross and know who's dying on that cross and see the crimson flow coming down and not be changed, says Spurgeon, there's something wrong with you. If you can look at that cross and understand the implications of the one who's dying in your stead, who loved you so much, who spoke the universe into existence, and yet died on that awful torture stake, then you don't understand the good news. But if you understand it, if you understand his love and his goodness and his mercy, you've understood who you are. You see, it's not about associations it's not about clicks. It's not about, I go here, I do this. It's about Christ. See, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I'm, I'm fearful to say this sometimes, but the verse goes on to say, I even want to know the fellowship of his suffering. I want to be conformed to his death. I want to fight the good fight. I want to finish my race. And he's cheering me on. You see, the church is not about individual agendas or opinions. It's about Christ. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul addressing a group of people he loved. He pleaded with them. He basically said, look, this is what's going to fix your division. Get back to the gospel. Get back to the Bible. Get back to Christ. Lord, if we have been straying and we all can have the propensity to do so, if we've been maybe focusing on the wrong things, maybe we've become a bit nitpicky because we've become inward focused, help us to get back to the basics. Help us to get back to the Bible, back to the gospel, back to sharing it, back to living a life of love as a witness to this broken world. Let us love each other as you loved us. Grant us the true peace that comes from you. Let us be a community that is so in love with you that the love for one another just overflows. If you haven't met Jesus, if you keep your head and heart bowed, if you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he loves you. That's why he came. You're here for a reason. He wants you to find your identity in him, in your union with him. It's something like this. If you've not met him, Jesus, would you save me? Thank you for coming into this world and dying for me. Thank you for rising from the dead. I turn from my sin. I turn from being misinformed and doing it my way. I trust in you and who you are, what you did, and who you say that I am in you. Father, for those who are crying out, for those who may be doing some business of rededication or renewal to a mission, I pray you'd bless them. I pray you'd meet them where they are. I pray that you'd 
pour your spirit out on them. I pray that you'd encourage and refresh and strengthen each life that's here. I pray that you would pour out your love and goodness and hope on those who are hurting, those who are suffering this morning, those who are a bit poured out, a bit frayed. Would you mend? Would you suture? Would you do the work that only you can do as we look to you? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.